You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Joining us this hour is friend and mentor, Dr. Stanley Krippner, a professor of psychology at Saybrook University and past president of the Association for Humanistic Psychology. The recipient of several distinguished awards and author and co-author of many books, Stan joined us earlier this season to talk about shamanism in general and things related to non-local consciousness, a discussion we continue this hour. In his recently released co-edited book with City and Morning Star Jones, their Bear and Company 2016 release, The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder, is a wonderful collection of stories told by people who knew him. For those who don't know who Rolling Thunder was, reading from the foreword by Dr. Harris Friedman, we learn that although named John Pope at birth, he became known as Rolling Thunder for a reason, namely his apparent interconnectedness with the weather, especially his reputed ability to summon forth intense rainstorms accompanied by thunder. He could do this even in unlikely circumstances when such occurrences defied current meteorological conditions. In this book, numerous accounts focus on Rolling Thunder's accurate prediction of such weather events in ways implying that he had successfully manipulated them for some purpose. End of quote. Thank you for rejoining us, Stan. Yes, indeed. There you are. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. It's a pleasure. So it's a beautiful book, The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder, and City and Morningstar Jones is Rolling Thunder's grandson. Share with us a bit about your own relationship with Rolling Thunder. I was very fortunate to have had a very close working relationship with Rolling Thunder for more than two decades, and... I actually met him through my connections with Mickey Hart and the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart being one of the drummers for the Grateful Dead. And he had met Rolling Thunder in the Haight-Ashbury when Rolling Thunder came down to visit his son, who was living there during the turbulent 1960s. And Mickey kept telling me, someday you've got to meet Rolling Thunder, someday you've got to meet Rolling Thunder. And so he had a private plane fly Rolling Thunder up for one of the Grateful Dead concerts, and that's where we finally met. You've met lots of shamans around the world, and Rolling Thunder... Over 100, yes. Over 100. Well, I don't know anybody who knows 100 shamans other than you. I'm not saying I know them, (laughs) but I have met them, and you will be interested in knowing that about half of them were women. That is an interesting addition, because you don't often think of shamans being characterized as females. No, you don't, but some of the best shamans I've known have been women, and some of the most powerful. Well, what is it that you think distinguishes a person with shamanic powers from others without them? I think that the key word is power, because the shaman, whether male or female, has the power to help other people in very extraordinary ways. And they can do this through healing. They can do this through giving advice. As is demonstrated with the Rolling Thunder, they can do this by making changes in the weather. And they can also alter their own 
state of consciousness at will and bring in spirits, bring in power animals, bring in power birds, all of their assistance on what they call the other side or the other world, and they get them to help out, especially in cases of healing. And that was, of course, one of Rolling Thunder's well-known skills was healing, not just this relationship with the weather. And you describe in the book on Rolling Thunder that you've co-authored also with City and Morningstar Jones um, some of these examples, and you've witnessed some of that. Oh, yes, I did. And as you know, we wrote a book a few years ago called The Voice of Rolling Thunder, and After we finished the book, we began to get letters from people who said, oh, I've got a Rolling Thunder story for you. He changed my life. He cured me. He healed me. He demonstrated his power with the weather. We got so many letters that we followed them up that thought, you know, this would make a good follow-up book. And so that's how the shamanic powers of Rolling Thunder came into existence. Some of the stories go back to the 80s, some are more recent, but I love the ones by um, Jean Millay, who is a colleague of yours, um, and she talked about visiting Meditante. Share with us a little bit about the center that Rolling Thunder founded that City and his his grandson now um, keeps going. Well, Meditante means go in peace in one of the indigenous dialects. And for many, many years, Rolling Thunder wanted to set up a healing center and a cultural center where people could actually learn the Indian ways. And he finally was able to do so with the donations he got from the Grateful Dead and also lecture fees he got from his lectures both here and in Europe. And for a decade, it was a very unusual community were people from literally all over the world, people from various ethnic groups and even of various ages, came and lived the Indian way with Rolling Thunder as the shaman and as the mentor and as the teacher. And I was there several times. The kitchen was a lively place, and they prepared foods according to Rolling Thunder's suggested diet, and they prepared a lot of Native American foods like succotash, and they did the ceremonies, the dances. They did not observe Western holidays, but they did observe birthdays in a great, grand, and glorious way. And then I hate to tell you that Metatante fell apart when Rolling Thunder's wife, Spotted Fawn, died. And I visited her several times in the hospital. She had a very advanced stage of cancer, and she kept cheerful and hopeful and loving through the whole thing. But without a doubt, Spotted Fawn, this would be Sydney and Morningstar's grandmother, she was the soul of heart of Methotati, and it was like when the heart stops beating, the organism dies. Mm Mm-hmm. When um, you read, it's like Camelot. For one glorious moment, there was Camelot, and yeah. for one glorious decade, there was Meditante. Well, you know, it's interesting. Things do have their time, and sometimes, as much as we might deny our own powers as individuals, it's because of one of us being there, whoever that one might be. 
And that's another beautiful example of it, how one soul can hold a center for thousands of people. Yes, it certainly is. And several of these stories in our book, The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder, are from people who spent time at Metatanti and who visited Metatanti. And you mentioned Jean Millay. She has some wonderful stories about Metatanti that she tells in not one, not two, but three different chapters of the book. Well, you know, and I thought one of the interesting things, and you had brought this up in another discussions we've had about the power of suggestion, because as as Jean describes, you know, her friend, a girlfriend who got a spider bite and then Rolling Thunder came to heal her and did this very elaborate, you know, chewing and sucking and this, that there's a lot of, um, what's the right word? dramatics that goes on to bring the recipient or the viewer into the ritual itself. Uh, share with us a little bit about this process of sort of the dramatic, um, I guess it's, a, I don't know what you call it, entrainment. Well, shamans were very instrumental, actually, in human evolution, because if people did not respond to the shamanic rituals, they died and their genes dropped out of the gene pool. If people did respond to the shamanic rituals, whether or not there was an inherent power or not, or actual power, they did respond to the drama, and this stimulated their immune system. It stimulated their inner healing capacity, and they survived, and their genes went on to enliven their ancestors, their, their descendants. And it also laid the groundwork or hypnosis, suggestion, the placebo effect, and many things that are now common in not only medicine, but other forms of healing. Rolling Thunder was a master of drama. He had a white buckskin suit that he wore for a lot of his healing ceremonies. He had a feather in his cap much of the time. He had various jewelry and necklaces given to him by supporters in all parts of the world. And so he made a very, very dramatic appearance whenever he appeared. And that enough was the beginning of a person's healing if they were hoping to come to him for healing. Mm-hmm. And and that's what you've commented in the past about shamans in general, wherever they are in the world, that if you don't have faith in the person, and it can be a healer, it can be a surgeon, it can be a psychologist, if there isn't some faith in the process, then the body doesn't heal. But I thought it really interesting. One of Jean Millay's comments was um, that Rolling Thunder had this total command of the herbs in Nevada, where he lived. And and that I also liked this part where she recorded that, quote, he told me that if he needed a medicine that he didn't have, he would charge up a glass of water with firm intention and his patient would improve after drinking it. And and this goes to something you've said before. How much of it is really about the substance a shaman uses as much as the faith the person has in the shaman? I think that in addition to the charisma and the healing power of the shaman and the appearance and the ritual that the shaman conducts, the other end of the scale is the healy, the patient, or the client. And it is that person's faith, hope, and expectation that closes the gap between the shaman and the patient and enables the healing to take place. And 
Of course, we'll never know how much of this is due to the unseen forces that Rolling Thunder talks about and how much is due to the inner self-healer of the client. But Rolling Thunder kept saying that I can't heal people that don't want to be healed Mm -hmm. because I can't access the shaman within all of us. So Rolling Thunder was very aware of the inner healing capacities that we all have, and he tried his best to evoke that self-healing. Yeah, I like the way that Gene remembers it being said is that it's the body that actually balances itself into healing. And if the person can't release the fear, then healing can't be enabled. And and it reminded me a little bit of uh, my late teacher, Terry Edward Ross, who taught me how to douse. And in a posthumous book they wrote about his work called The Divining Mind, they, or was it The Divining Heart, I think was the posthumous one. He got to the point at the end of his life of just sending his clients color from his mind. And up until then, he was dowsing DNA and switching DNA on and off and doing rather elaborate things. And towards the end of his life work, he found the same thing Rolling Thunder and others found, which is it's really a very simple choice of intention and then attention. You are so right. And intention is the key word in a lot of what we do with consciousness, especially when it comes to healing and even when it comes to psychotherapy and counseling, the intention on the part of the therapist and of the client is a very, very key factor. And I've seen this many times around the world, both with shamans and with psychotherapists. If you're just joining us, our guest is Dr. Stanley Krippner. We're discussing the shamanic powers of rolling thunder as experienced by people such as Alberto Villaldo, John Perry Barlow, Larry Dawsey, whom you know from our show and others, and others. It's written by, rather co-edited by Stanley Krippner and City and Morningstar Jones. Again, a Bear and Company 2016 release, and you can find them at www.innertraditions.com. Hello, my name is Matthew Fox, and I'm a spiritual theologian, author of a number of books, including Christian Mystics and The Pope's War. And you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe, and I commend Dr. Zoe for her wonderful work and for having a program that offers alternative ways of seeing the world and seeing it through the glasses of spirituality and ethics. So stay listening. Dr. Stanley Krippner is our guest, and besides being the recipient of Distinguished Awards, he's the author and co-author of many books, including The Voice of Rolling Thunder, which we discussed earlier in the season with City and Morningstar Jones as well, Demystifying Shamans and Their World, which he co-authored with Adam Rock, Personal Mythology, and Extraordinary Dreams and How to Work with Them. Tonight we're looking at his new co, I guess, co-edited book called The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder. So coming back to some of that, Stan, you have offered a number of entries as well in in terms of your experience with Rolling Thunder. And one of them, you begin by talking about suicide as being the second leading cause of death among Native American individuals who are between 15 and 34 years old. Why is this so important? It's very important to realize this because suicide is one way that young people who are in despair register their disillusionment with life. And as you know, suicide is very common with alienated young people in the United States, no matter what their ethnicity. 
young people who are bullied, who are teased because of their size, because of their ethnicity, because of their sexual orientation, often just cannot take it anymore, and they kill themselves not only out of despair but as a protest. And many of the Native Americans who kill themselves are protesting as well as just giving up because their lives really don't seem to amount to anything. So this is really a task for our society to instill some sort of power and pride in people of whatever age, whatever gender, whatever ethnicity, so that they can keep on going with their lives. Rolling Thunder was very good at this, by the way, and I can't think of a single suicide that ever happened at his place on his watch because he knew the inherent value of every single person, and most of the people at Metatonti were young people, and he did find ways to empower them and to encourage them to follow their path and to be of value to themselves and to the world. You describe as one of your um, entrees, our entries, We Know How, and it, it described your own experience with a tribe, a group living in the province of Parana, Brazil. And in it, you describe how you attended a conference and then remarked about Rolling Thunder towards the end of the conference about his nonviolent action to save the pinion tree. And I just thought it was such a beautiful demonstration of how he brought so many people to appreciating that stewardship can be done and it must be done without violence. Yes, absolutely. Rolling Thunder learned a lot from not only his own tradition, but from Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and other nonviolent protesters. And he called his followers spiritual warriors, but they were warriors of peace. He never encouraged them to use violence, but to use their brains. And this is why, to stop the destruction of the pinion nut trees, he actually had them go and put sand in the bulldozers, and that put the bulldozers out of commission for several weeks. And then... While the bulldozers are being repaired, some of his people took the film of the destruction of the pinion trees to Washington, D.C., and as we describe in the book, Senator Edward Kennedy and President Richard Nixon, of all people, got together and agreed that this had to stop, and that's what stopped the destruction of the pinion trees. That's the thing that's so, um, I guess, the thing that I appreciate the most when you read about individual people, again, coming back to a remark I made earlier, that sometimes we forget the power we each have. And that was one of the things Rolling Thunder really encouraged everybody to appreciate. And it was about coming into harmony with their inner voice and coming into harmony with the earth. You know, one of the stories I thought was so interesting, I don't remember the gentleman who it was, but, oh, I know, it was Fred Sweeney or Swinney who um, had been a, what was he, a psychologist? His, yeah. fish, his physician, I think, had told him he would be dead, and then he had this experience. Do you remember that story? I remember it very well because I knew Fred Swinney even before he went to Metatonti to study with Rolling Thunder, and even before he took on the name Gray Wolf. And he was actually in the business world before he was a psychologist, and this is when he was told that he had six months to live, 
he went into the Canadian wilderness on a retreat, and in the wilderness he had a shamanic calling. He had a dream in which a wolf came out of the forest and devoured him, ate him up. And when he woke up, he knew that this had been some sort of a call. He didn't quite understand it, but he noticed that when he became a psychologist after going back to school, he became a psychologist, and he felt that this wolf was with him when he made the wisest decisions. And so he felt that he had become part of that wolf after the wolf devoured him in his dream, and that's when he took the name on of Gray Wolf. Then he went to Rolling Thunder for some additional work and uh, additional learning and brought that back. So he was extremely helpful to his clients, actually, in the state of Oregon. It's interesting how many times, I mean, yourself, you're well-known worldwide as being the dream man, and there's, you know, you're famous for having these dream conversations in the mornings at everything, every conference that you go to, but, but it was also something that Rolling Thunder enjoyed doing as well. Why are dreams part of a tool for healing? When we dream, we get in touch with a part of our psyche that we ordinarily ignore. In technical terms, it's called the default mechanism of the brain that takes over when the rational, logical mechanism is incapacitated or asleep. And this uh, secondary way of thinking and feeling has its own wisdom, and it has its own wisdom in that it ignores our usual constraints of time and space and energy and all those other parameters of Western science. It just goes its own way, sees into the future, picks up information from the past, visits other worlds, uh, enables healing to take place. And so Rolling Thunder not only got some good ideas from his dreams, but he was very adept in working with people's dreams, and he would very rarely take them literally. He would look for the symbol and the metaphor behind the dreams and work with them in a very sophisticated way. As we mentioned at the start of the discussion, Rolling Thunder, of course, the name, tells us one of the things that people remember the most, and there are a number of entries in the book about his use of Rolling Thunder. Why, why do you believe that Rolling Thunder himself, John Pope, as he was originally called, had this um, relationship to the elementals versus some shamans will have a relationship with a tiger and others perhaps with water? This is a matter of, you know, individual choice, and the shamans do not choose this relationship. The relationship comes to them. Fred Swinney had no interest in wolves until the wolf came to him in the dream and ate him up. And then he began to get pictures of wolves from friends, uh, videos of wolves. They didn't know why they were sending it. They said, I just felt that I should send this to you. And so the interesting thing about shamanism is it's not usually a profession that you set out to do. It's a profession that seeks you out mm -hmm. in dreams, through visions, through the sudden appearance of power animals, power birds, quirks of nature, sometimes with sicknesses that 
become healed when the person asserts his or her shamanic power. So there's a number of ways that the call, so to say, the call comes to the person who is who has, shall we say, shamanic propensities, who has that power, that intelligence, and that compassion that shamans need. Yeah, you had mentioned the key word, of course, being service. And so there are many people who perhaps, you know, learn certain techniques, but their intention is not service. And that's always of concern to me when people say, well, I'm going to go take a workshop with so-and-so. And I just sort of, in a, in a pleasant way, try to remind them um, that they are being charged a lot of money for it and to ask whether or not this person is in a service community. You know, I, I find that, I think it's important. It's one thing to learn technique. It's another thing to practice something authentically. You are so right. And Rolling Thunder did a number of workshops, but he certainly didn't say that people could become shamans after taking the workshops. Exactly. In his workshops, he gave them a lot of common-sense advice a lot of recipes for herbs that they could find very easily in woods, forests, mountains, trees, or in their backyard, how to use those herbs. Also, how to think and feel in empowering ways. So his workshops were very down-to-earth and common-sense-oriented. Yeah, and one of the things, of course, everybody knew him for, in addition to his ability to bring rolling thunder and rain, um, is he talked a lot about disaster for the earth. And, you know, he's not alone in this, but I think in the book it mentioned Lame Deer and Sun Bear, which are two other 20th century Native American prophets who really underscored this same theme. How, how did Rolling Thunder approach this, what he could see already being so dire for Mother Earth? Well, this, of course, is one of his contributions, as well as the, some of the other shamans who you've mentioned, who are very alarmed at the way that the human contingent on Earth has been treating the Earth over the, basically, over the past few thousand years. Originally, people were at one with the Earth, and even today, indigenous people take good care of the earth in terms of not polluting it, in terms of giving back to the earth what the earth gives to them. But that lesson has been lost to what we call Western civilization. And Rolling Thunder was very quick to pick up on this. And, of course, he forecast global warming before it became a common term. And many of the statements that he made came to pass. One that I remember personally, I was there for his 80th birthday party, I think it was, in Santa Cruz, and he was having a good time with everybody, having buffalo meat to eat, succotash, other Native American dishes. And a few days later, he said, you know, I've got to leave Santa Cruz because something really terrible is going to happen here. So he and his group got in their van and went back to Nevada, and shortly after they left, we had the Loma Prieta earthquake. You know, it reminds me very much of how animals, you know, are so tuned in physiologically to the earth and to spirit. You know, I often joke that some of them seem to know what spirit's going to do before spirit's even acted, and we see this with the shaman tradition in general is this just this attunement 
to everything that's vibrational, that it doesn't have to be words and somebody doesn't have to make a big announcement, but there's a knowing. It seems to me, though, Stan, one of the challenges for people is lots of people have a sensitivity or they have a feeling or they have a dream, but it's not paying attention to it, meaning oftentimes we're given all the information we need, just like a shaman is, but we don't follow up on it. You're right. It's a shame. Um, people tend to overuse the rational, logical aspects of their psyche and don't pay enough attention to creativity, to insight, or to the subtle parts of uh, the universe that keep trying to bring their attention to important issues, dreaming, of course, being one way that they could get this information. Yeah, I mean, in my new book, which you had a chance to look at, even though it's not totally um, ready, (laughs) ready for public viewing, um, I spent two years dreaming with these white spirit animals in the way that shamans do. And and it was a fascinating experience for me to appreciate how any one of us, given the desire to serve a species or a tree or a cloud or a flower or a bear, if if my experience is probably what any of us can do and what shamans do by practice, it means we can incubate answers to any problem we face, whether it's personal, collective, national, international. Well, of course you're right. And people say, well, what can one person do? Actually, one person can do a lot. Costa Rica is trying to save its rainforests and I actually donated a small amount of money that has bought a couple of acres in Costa Rica, and that will never be turned into development. That is now part of the national park in Costa Rica. And many other individuals have done the same thing, some of them giving much more money than I gave. So now Costa Rica has a very well-developed national park system And there are laws in place that will keep any developer to ruining that park. And it's a wonderful vacation place for people who want to come to Costa Rica. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to take a break. Our guest is Dr. Stanley Krippner. His new book, co-edited with City and Morningstar Jones, is entitled The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder. Go to www.bearandcompany.com or www.innertraditions.com. Hello, this is Robbie Holtz, co-author of award-winning Secrets of Aboriginal Healing and Aboriginal Secrets of Awakening. You can learn more about us at www.holtzwellness.com. That's H-O-L-Z, as in zebra, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S.com. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Read a lovely edited, co-edited book by our guest this hour, Dr. Stanley Krippner and City and Morningstar Jones, entitled The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder, a Bear and Company 2016 release. You know, Stan, there were so many interesting things in this um, lovely collection, and one of them I was not aware of, but of course, which you knew quite well, that Rolling Thunder felt he was guided by the seven stars of the Pleiades constellation, and that his turban often had a seven-pointed star on it. Why the Pleiades? You know, you've read the book very, very well. This is a rarity in my interviews that somebody actually does a knowledgeable questioning. 
But back to your very, very wise questions, he actually felt that his people not exactly came from the Pleiades, but they were guided by spirits from the Pleiades. And so this is why he always wore this um, constellation of the seven stars on his turban, on his cap, on his sweater, someplace along the way. But yes, he felt a very close connection with the Pleiades. Having finished, you know, this White Spirit Animal book and having looked at so many different native Indian tribe stories, Zulu stories, Buddhist, Hindu stories, um, going back to the last Ice Age, you know, we're going back 14,000, 16,000 years ago, there are certain planetary communities that consistently come up in all of their stories. One is the Pleiades, one is Sirius, and one is Alcyon as being the gateway to the Milky Way. And so it always interests me when you hear moderners say, well, I have an affiliation with the Pleiades or Alcyon or Lyra. And um, I myself often feel this affiliation with the Pleiades. And so when I read this, I went, wow, that's really unusual. I didn't realize that's why he wore his turban. And one of the um, gentlemen who contributed a number of um, pieces for this edited book the title was Healing from Creation by Dr. Jurgen Werner Kremer, or Kremer, is that his name? Yes, Dr. Kremer actually gave us two wonderful chapters for the book. Yeah, and I thought that his interesting um, comments about the challenge of any healing is, is, again, it goes back to this ability, he called it, to generate the necessary, quote, creative energies so that spirit may intervene, and he said some people call this grace. Well, Dr. Kramer, among his other talents, is a longtime psychotherapist. He's originally from Germany, and so he is using a lot of terms that today's energy healers are using, except he was using those terms and those practices 30 and 40 years ago, and Again, it's a metaphor for the um, subtle forces that uh, can assist in healing, and many healers link these subtle forces from the shaman to terrestrial and extraterrestrial forces, not only the forces from the mountains and the trees and the deserts and the oceans and the forests, but from the stars, from the cosmos, from uh, what we call heavenly bodies. And why not? You know, we're all one. Creation is all one. And some people might have the ability to tap into something that we think is at a distance, but actually is another dimension is right there with us today. A lovely um, comment about Rolling Thunder's vision um, included his appreciation for using technology for change. This, of course, is why Rolling Thunder did not turn his back on technology. He saw that technology could be very, very effective, and many of his spiritual warriors were young people who brought their computers, their iPads, their iPhones with them to Metatonti and taught Rolling Thunder the advantage of using them. In fact, Sidney Morningstar Jones used his iPhone interview people for our books, and so we owe a great deal of gratitude to technology 
for getting the words of people just right and just correct in a greater length than if they would have had to write something out themselves. And the very last part of the book, we have an afterthought by Stephen Spear taking off on the word Sidian, which is Sidian's adopted name, not his real name, but the name that he created himself in honor of Obsidian, the sacred black stone of the Mayas and the Aztecs. And what Stephen Spear says is, yes, but not only is the black stone a part of ancient history, it's a part of modern history. Just look at the iPhone that Sidian has been using, and that's black and that's shiny. So there you have Sidian and obsidian up to date. A very clever connection that none of us had picked up on before. How interesting. Another um, interesting point that I thought worth bringing to the audience's attention was described also in that particular um, entry, entree called Smoke and Mirrors. And it dealt with why Rolling Thunder would sometimes make it rain and thunder after he had done some form of ritual. He often felt that the rain would cover up the tracks of the uh, ritual so that um, curious strangers would not think that there had been some sort of pagan or heathen festival going on. And so it was sort of a way of bringing things to a close and sort of covering up the evidence. Yeah, and and then I read another interesting aspect, at least the way he sometimes would speak of it, um, is that it was to get rid of the powers that had been brought up. And because somebody malevolent, and we often talked about this decades ago, of it's one thing to learn how to do something. It's another thing to know how to close, you know, how to finish, how to ground, because yes. you can bring a great deal of energies up from the earth or out of the elementals or in the woods. And if you summon them and then you don't give them anything to do, the next person who walks through the woods, who may not have good intention, can actually do harm or be harmed. Well, Rolling Thunder was very big on finishing things off, and not only did he bring on the rain to cover up the tracks, he brought on the rain to dissipate any leftover energy that might be there and that could be put to malevolent use. Also, when he did his cupping and sucking of people and uh, drew poisonous stuff out of their body, he would spit it in the pail, and then he would instruct one of his people to take the pole, the pail, to a remote area and empty it and bury it. Again, instead of just dumping it on the ground, which would be irresponsible, he felt that it should be buried so it would not be picked up by malevolent people and put to bad use. Yeah, exactly. You know, for, for people who have never um, seen any of this or experienced any of it, sometimes I'm sure when they listen to these kinds of discussions, they think, oh, come on, you're telling me you summon spirits and then anything that's bad, you take the water and you dump it somewhere in the earth and the earth absorbs it and it's all fine again, when the, they may not even believe that there was anything there in the first place because what we're talking about are things that to some degree are invisible, but then there is an effect that is noticeable. Yes, that's right. There is the visible or the overt part of the healing or the ceremony, and then there is the subtle or covert or unseen invisible part. 
and people like Rolling Thunder are in charge of both and can actually see and feel and hear and smell both. Most of them, myself included, most of the others, only see what's visible and only are aware of the covert. We don't know much about the covert, covert mm-hmm. just what's visible. You know, one of the questions I often get from listeners is, how do you know the difference and how does a shaman know the difference between their imagination and their perception? The rolling thunder, there's not much that you can say is a difference because imagination is just a different way of perceiving something. Now, ordinary people can imagine stuff, but... When a shaman imagines something, the shaman is often able to bring that into a level of reality that makes it visible. And, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. Mm -hmm. And if a shaman imagines something, and if that imaginary power or force or power animal or power bird is actually in some way tied in with an outcome or a healing, then who are we to say that that's complete uh, fantasy? It could be simply reality on a different level. Exactly. Exactly. Also, you know, from the field of psychophysiology, we have an interesting topic. A lot of sports people will rehearse a tennis move or a golf move or a basketball move. They will do this in their imagination. And... The same part of the brain is activated when they do this in their imagination that's activated when they do it on the course or on the golf course or on the basketball court. So from the brain's point of view, they don't see the difference. Right. And, of course, that's also why when we've talked about trauma in the past, it's so important for all of us to appreciate that when we're watching violent news stories or violent playing violent video games or involving ourselves in things that are pretty destructive, it's not that nothing is happening. Something very big is actually going on in our bodies physiologically, which doesn't know the difference between something that you might call in the present time now a murder in your house versus seeing a murder on TV. Oh, you are so right. People don't um, pay enough attention to this because the line between imagination and perceptual reality is a very fuzzy one, a very indistinct one. And many people do something that's violent or just simply mischievous, and the next day, oh, that was part of a dream. That was part of my imagination. They don't even realize that they did it because the line between inner and outer reality is so fuzzy. Right, and as some traditions would teach us that what we think is outer reality is itself an illusion (laughs) that we're actually creating through our perception. I mean, we could spend a day or in a tour on that one. But coming back to Rolling Thunder and some of the other chiefs like Chief Joseph in Seattle, who I've talked about over the years, um, or the Mamas of the Kogi, you know, who see Earth as a living network. All of these people and all of these traditions are basically calling all of us out to pay attention to 
the reverent world we're part of or to be reverent towards the world that that none of us is separate and nothing in the world is separate from us well you're right and i have to make a little correction rolling thunder would not let people call him chief because a chief is the political and military leader of the of the tribe right and the shaman or the medicine man or the medicine woman is the counselor the mediator and the healer and most tribes have both. They have a female or even a male shaman. There are some notable female sh- uh, shamans, as I said before. Right. But also, they will have a chief who is usually male, but in Native American tribes today, it's interesting how many female chiefs there are. And you don't call them chieftainesses anymore. You have to call them chief. That's the title that they deserve. Mm-hmm. I think that's one important thing about the revival of Native American studies and Native American practices are we beginning to realize how much power women had before the European invasion and how women actually had more of a role in governance and in decision-making and in finances than did the wives of the colonists and settlers and soldiers who came over from Europe. No question about it. In fact, Dr. Bob and Laura Cortner's new book, The Secret Life of Lady Liberty, Goddess in the New World, does this absolutely exquisite job of describing how all this power that Native women had and that our forefathers, our founders, chose only to mimic some of what they taught. And one of them was not women as landholders, women as leaders, women as the ones who decided who would have a job and who wouldn't. But, Stan, I want to thank you. Well, before you go on, I want to put a plug for the book, Lady Liberty. It's a wonderful book, and I hope your readers are aware of it and your listeners are aware of it. It is. It's called The Secret Life of Lady Liberty, Goddess in the New World, and there are links to the website and various interviews that Bob and Laura have done together, and they're headed up to give a big presentation at the National Arts Club, so hopefully we'll turn a bunch of people in the arts community into this understanding of the female goddess being... um, the matrifocal cultures that we hope one day to restore on Earth. And by the way, that's what came out of my own work with the white spirit animals, Stan. The one message that surprised me the most from all of them was their urging humanity to return to a matrilineal society, which all our mammals have. Well, there you have it. That's right. There you go. We learn from the animals what we have forgotten. Dr. Stanley Kripner, a wonderful book, again with City and Morningstar Jones, The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder. Go to www.innertraditions.com. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.